0: Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area.
1: Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about contemporary psychoanalytic concepts applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Dr. Fernando Castrillon. Fernando Castrión is a personal and supervising psychoanalyst and the editor-in-chief of the European Journal of Psychoanalysis. He's a member of the Elvio Facinelli Institute for Advanced Studies in Psychoanalysis, based in Rome. He serves as faculty with the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California and is on the board of directors of the Berkeley Psychoanalytic Society. He's professor emeritus at the California Institute of Integral Studies and is the founding director of the CIS Clinic Without Walls. His recent publications include Burning Down the House, Wildfires, Psychoanalysis, Tumult, No Leaders, No Masses, Virtuality, and Contemporary Group Life in the Shadow of Freud, and Denying Death its Due, Ecological Discourse, Technology, and the Unconscious. His latest book, Coronavirus, Psychoanalysis and Philosophy, Conversations on Pandemics, Politics, and Society, co-edited with Thomas Marchewski, was published in 2021. Fernando Castrion maintains a private psychoanalytic practice in the San Francisco Bay Area. He can be found at www.drcastrion.com. Today, Dr. Castrion will discuss the Lacanian understanding of desire and lack, what they are, why they're important, and how it is we surmise consumer technology may influence or be influenced by our experiences of desire and lack. Welcome to the show, Dr. Castrion.
2: Thank you so much. It is so nice to be here, especially with you, Nicole, Dr. Zapien, right? We've known each other for a while professionally, and it's a real pleasure to be here and be able to speak with you. I always find my conversations with you to be uplifting and make me think. The
1: same is true for me.
2: Okay, excellent. So I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. I'm honored.
1: Wonderful. So desire and lack are common words in the English language, and of course they have their Translations into French, which will become relevant in a minute, uh, Lacan means something very specific with these two terms. Tell us what Lacan means by desire and lack and why these concepts are important for our understanding of the human psyche and for human relationships.
2: Right. So we're going straight to the heart of the matter by choosing those two concepts because they're at the very heart of psychoanalysis, at least in the Lacanian frame. And so what I'll try to do is actually make a differentiation between how those two terms desire and lack are understood and regular parlance and then think through how lacan actually defines it in his work now i should note that lacan did seminars for decades and any of his key concepts morph over time so I will give you sort of like a a synthetic rendition of these two terms. But it's also important to understand there's a lot more texture and nuance to the terms. And you would have to go to the seminars and to the accree, which is a collection of his writings. And you can find this in English. It's edited by Bruce Fink. And you would have to go to those texts to be able to get more of that texture and nuance. But I think we can do a pretty good job here with what I'll put on the table. So we're used to terms like desire. And we think of desire, we usually think of sexual desire. And while sexual desire is not necessarily exempted from the way that Lacan understands desire, it is not necessarily sexual desire, right? So when we think of desire we should very quickly go to the lack because that's actually where it starts so one of the phrases from Lacan, and i'm i'm careful to use little sound bites from Lacan because in many ways it simplifies something that's vastly more complex but i'll do that here and there but one of the things he says is desire sits on the lack which is to say that desire actually emanates or emerges from the lack itself so as a way of getting to the lack, which is really what we're going for, to be able to like have this conversation, I think the first step is to understand that for Lacan, desire always refers to unconscious desire. That's important. When Lacanians speak about the subject, they're talking about the subject of the unconscious. When they're talking about desire, they're talking about unconscious desire. And that immediately puts us in a very different realm or land than what we usually think of when we think of desire.
1: Indeed, it does.
2: (laughs) Right, right. Now, the aim of analysis is to essentially assist the analysand, the person on the couch, to articulate and recognize their desire. In many ways, that's what the end and the aim of a Lacanian analysis is. But before we can actually get into desire more properly, we have to understand the lack because desire is the metonymy of the lack of being. Okay, what am I saying with that? Or better yet, what is Lacan saying with that? So very early in his work, Lacan started formulating a theory of the lack. And it's a concept that's always in relationship to desire. And in terms of that, we have to understand that it's the lack of being. So when we understand lack in common sort of like parlance or conversation, somebody says, well, I, for example, I lacked the key that would turn on the car, or I lack this element that would not allow me to do my work, for example. It just means you're missing something. And Lacan is pointing at something like that. In a sense, there is something missing, but he's actually grounding it in being, right? So he talks about this very early on in the second seminar, which is the ego and Freud's theory, and in the technique of psychoanalysis. He also talks about it elsewhere, like in the direction of the treatment and the principles of its power, which you can find in the accree. But desire, again, is the metonymy of the lack of being. So when we talk about lack, as Lacanians, we're talking about the lack of being. And so now that's, enormously complex, and we don't really have the time to be able to get into it now. But I think there's what we should do that would allow us to like go on with the conversation is to distinguish between three different kinds of lack. And there's the lack in the imaginary, the lack in the symbolic, and the lack in the real. And each one shows up in a different way. And signals different things. So one of the ways that I would like to talk about the lack is symbolic castration. Mm -hmm. And the object that is in play with symbolic castration is the imaginary phallus. Okay. So let me say a little bit about that, because I think that'll help us get right to smartphones, for example. Mm -hmm. So The imaginary phallus is somebody believing the lie that they actually have it, it being the thing, the thing that completes them, the thing that completes the big other or the other, right? But it's the thing that will come in to actually fill the space that has been generated by the lack in being. Now, it's called imaginary because it has to do with Lacan's category, has three registers of human experience, essentially, and one of them is called the imaginary. It doesn't mean imaginary, like it's all fanciful and fantasy, although there is a lot of that in imaginary. We have to think of the imaginary as a realm of the mirror or images, right? And so within that realm, which is also the realm of the ego, you do have this thing, or better yet, there is this sense that there is this imaginary phallus. If I could only have this thing everything would be fine, right? Or I'd be complete. That's important.
1: Kind of sounds like you're talking a little bit about love or about capitalism. I'm thinking about how many people believe in the lie that if I only have this one lover, or if I only have this one object, fill in the blank car or vacation or house or what have you, I'll be complete.
2: Yep, exactly. And in many ways, that's very close to the formula for the symptom as Lacan formulated it. Uh-huh. which is you have the split subject in relationship to the object A, ah, which is the lost object, or better yet, this sort of representation of the original loss for the subject, right? And so there's two sides to the symptom in psychoanalysis. So one side is the, the conscious side, or the side that we're aware of, right? So that side is, if I only had this thing, I'd be fine, right? If only this thing in my life was resolved, this problem with my parents or a sibling or my lover or whatever it might be, if only that were resolved, everything in my life would be fine. The unconscious side of that same formula is, in fact, I could not live if it weren't for this thing that aggrieves me, right? And so, in other words, the symptom holds something incredibly important for the person. And in some ways, the imaginary phallus acts to essentially buttress or hold the symptom in place, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: which is to say, yeah, that's right. If you only had that thing, you'd be fine. You'd have everything that you need in the world. And I think that's exactly where, for example, a lot of the technological innovations that we have now actually come to the fore because they do promise that in many ways. And we've come to believe that that's the case. So I'll make a very simple equation here. Smartphone equals the imaginary phallus. Mm -hmm. In many ways, it is about the smartphone and it's not. The smartphone is only the latest sort of promise that the discourse of capitalism provides saying that indeed you can have it all, right? Now, I think there's something else that's very crucial, though, about the smartphone that we should not overlook, which is its seriality and the fact that it always promises more, that there is not an end, right? That if you keep on going, you may very well find the thing you're looking for. So the smartphone both gratifies and frustrates. So somebody in engaging with a smartphone, thinks they have it, they have access to everything in terms of data and information and what's going on in the world and pornography or whatever it is they're into, they they sense they could have it all, right? And there is a sense of, or a lack to speak of, a lack of finitude when one is dealing with something like the smartphone. There's always something else. And it could very well be that the imaginary phallus I'm looking for Is somewhere along that series that I'm engaging in. And so there is that. But that's always what the discourse of capitalism has given us, right? Is that it can give us the object that can complete us. Now, what's interesting is we know that's not the case because once somebody gets the thing, whatever it is that they thought they were looking for, it very quickly jumps to the next thing. And I think pornography works very well as an example of this. When people, and we know this just from, because we hear this from the couch, we know this from studies, when people are, for example, looking at pornography, they don't look at one single piece of pornography. Not usually. <laughs> right, at a series of images, and they keep on searching. And it's that seriality, that capacity to give you yet one more instance, of whatever it is that you're looking for that I do think marks the smartphone as different. It's almost like capitalism plus in that it works so damn well.
1: Mm -hmm. Tell me what you think about this. I oftentimes have conversations, you know, on the couch with patients where they're telling me about instances of searching for what they think they want. Then they stumble upon in that process something else which sends them in what I call the search for the end of the internet, which, of course, they never find. So it's exactly in that vein of what you're talking about, desire, frustration, and lack. But what I find is fascinating is it's a very different searching process than, for example, when one goes into an actual bookstore, brick-and-mortar bookstore, and you sort of wander around and maybe something catches your eye visually visually. And then you're in a whole new section of the bookstore that you never would usually find yourself or you have to walk through one section to go to another compared to the way that the algorithms work in say porn search engines or any search engine. I think it might be interesting to talk about that. And what's the difference between wandering around searching in the real world and stumbling upon something and what I call trying to find the end of the internet?
3: But (laughs)
2: that's a great question. I do think there is a very considerable difference between engaging in the world. In other words, not have it be mediated by a screen. And I'll get to that distinction because it's a key one. Something like that, I think, does happen, for example, at times, right, where one encounters something and then there is a possibility of actually engaging with it without having one's own fantasy material always take the lead on something like that. Hmm.
1: So it's something like coming to terms with the limits, our own limits, our own lacks, our humanity and humility in viewing the other and in dealing with our own desires.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think these qualities that you spoke of, right, are what are in very short supply, because I think the the real damage of the smartphone of these kind of technologies is that they do expressly aim to support this aspect of us that is doing its best to think that it can have it all, that there are no limits, that there are no boundaries. And it's not that the smartphone brought that into being. No, the discourse of capitalism has been giving us that line for a long time. But the smartphone essentially puts that on drugs and says, no, you really can't have it all. Let me give you an example of it. Now, I think the other part of it is that screen-mediated relationships are impoverished relationships. Now, I'll go so far as to say that, and I'll say that with a lot of emphasis and with no apology, because I do think screen-mediated relationships are less than the kind of relationships one has in person. Mm -hmm. There are ways of presenting oneself on the internet or via a device like the smartphone that allows us to try to present a certain aspect of ourselves, but not all of ourselves. And the other thing is the smartphone functions as a sort of mamilo in Spanish or a pacifier. So just this past Sunday afternoon, I was at a park and I was sitting there having food and I saw this group of early 20 year olds sitting around having a grand time. It was great. It's summer. They're out there. It was beautiful. We're in a Bay Area and the gorgeous weather was in real force that day. And I couldn't help but notice that the entire time they were talking with each other, each one held their phone. In their hand and would periodically glance at their phone, particularly when the conversation got difficult. It's almost like they get a certain hit from the phone that allows them to continue engaging in social interaction in the real. I do find that very interesting. The other part of it that I think is really dangerous about smartphones is it gets in the way of real developmental milestones for young people particularly when it comes to questions of boredom and loneliness. So I've spoken about this at length, because for me, it's really at the heart of the matter.
1: You're speaking about development, and I'm just thinking about older folks and memory loss and so on, and whether or not people like myself who now largely rely on Google Maps or some map you know, device or various other things to store my phone numbers and whatnot, am I losing out on the development and maintenance of memory that I will then pay the price for later? because of the smartphone.
2: Back in the mid 90s, I dropped my first laptop on the ground. <laughs> now, I won't go into perhaps some of the unconscious reasons for why that happened or why I did that. But the reason I bring it up was that I very quickly had the sense that I had lost part of my memory, not just like data files, like I had you know, papers and whatnot in there, but it was something larger, like my capacity to memory, like making memory here into a verb, right? To engage in that process was highly compromised when the laptop was broken. Once I got it fixed, right, it felt like I got it back in some sense. So I do think there is something to that. What I'm pointing to is a little bit different in the sense of boredom and loneliness being real human experiences that are formative in that we all have to come to formulate a response to them. So boredom is a real thing, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Boredom can signal many different things, but anybody faced with the question or the issue of boredom formulates a response to it. Oftentimes, it leads somebody to actually think through something of their own desire. And we're talking about desire here, so it's key. As I read the other day in, in a paper I was editing, somebody said that left alone for a sufficient amount of time, somebody's going to sit and eventually get to, well, what is my desire? And that's the whole point of an analysis. That's why we don't say an enormous amount in an analysis precisely so the analysis can finally sit there and get to this question of desire. But that doesn't happen with a smartphone. Why? Because the smartphone promises and it actually delivers on constant entertainment, right? So there's that. But the other part of it is also loneliness. You never really have to be lonely or better yet, I would formulate it this way. You never really have to sit with the basic fact that you're alone in the universe. You don't have to, because there's always the prospect of connecting with somebody. So having said all that, I do think there's an important concept that we haven't gone to yet that would be helpful and actually like parsing through these questions of desire and technology, which is Lacan's other, as he said it, there's only real invention, which is jouissance.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, jouissance is an extremely complex and difficult concept for Lacan. There's many different aspects to it and the way it articulates itself is something that would be worthy of a lot of thinking through but we have limited time so i will speak about jouissance in a very particular way here sense as a kind of buzz it's like a buzz that has like a sexual kick the sexual kick aspect of it is important to what i'm saying
1: so kind of like a dopamine hit
2: in a sense yeah right so The reason I bring it up is that for Lacan, there's really two poles. There's the pole of desire and lack. And then the other pole, right, that we can live within or between is that of jouissance. Now, jouissance works to attempt to plug the lack. So here's this basic fact of our existence as humans. And in many ways, it's derivative of language. We are lacking beings because we are speaking beings. The fact of language, the fact that we are used by language, really, not that we use language, but that language uses us, makes it so that we are split subjects, the spaltung in Lacanian analytic terms. And it makes it so that as a divided subject, we do have the experience of the lack now, the lack is not any fun; it's very difficult to deal with. That's why analyses take so long because somebody's approaching the lack and working with it. But what's more important in what I'm getting at here is that there is something that we constantly deploy so as to not ever arrive at the door of desire and lack and that thing we employ is jouissance right. And that's what the smartphone gives. There's this constant buzz. There's like a sexual kick. It's like lighting up a cigarette, it's like having an orgasm. It's like something at that level that's so tantalizing. It captures us so much that we don't ever actually have to arrive at desire and lack. Mm.
1: So, what is the benefit then? You know, if I could have a life that is filled with all of these pleasures that have a sexual kick and largely avoid lack and desire and the pains of being human, of being a split subject, of being lacking, why wouldn't I simply sign? I mean, there's risks to cigarette smoking, I suppose, but why wouldn't I sign up for some healthier versions of tantalizing pleasure ad infinitum rather than deal with lack? What's the benefit of dealing with lack?
2: So, and many, one interesting way of defining it is jouissance is the result of the effects of language on the body. And jouissance actually goes beyond the body's capacities, which is a way of saying that if you hit that jouissance button enough times, it will do something to you. <laughs> I'm kind of stepping out of Lachanese and speaking in those terms. To speak in a more like open sort of like, yeah, like open non-technical way. And what I'm saying is you keep on hitting that button, you're going to wear yourself out.
1: Well, and furthermore, I think many people arrive in our offices, I don't know if this is the case for you, but many people arrive in my office having hit that button many times and realizing that it doesn't make them happy, it doesn't satisfy them, but more to the point, they're not even seeking happiness and satisfaction anymore. They're actually seeking something meaningful, something real, something substantive, and they're really quite lost. And that's one of the main issues that drives them to come to analysis.
2: Absolutely. I think that underlies so many of the demands or requests for analysis or for therapy, for that matter, nowadays. I hear that again and again and again.
1: Ironically, I hear that from my folks who work in the tech industry the
2: most. Oh, sure, because they're implicated in that world perhaps more than anybody else. You know, one of the things that I've noticed more recently in terms of what you just spoke about in terms of like when people come into our office and what they're actually looking for is this phenomena I've come to call at least for the moment, the church of YouTube. Mm. So the church of YouTube is that phenomena where they on YouTube are able to find one after another. So again, we go to this question of, of seriality, one video after another of uplifting messages of inspirational quotes, of ways of thinking about the world, but that are vapid in many ways, but because there's always one more video, you can stay in that church until the bottom falls out. And that's what I hear people bringing into the office now is that the bottom falls out of the church of YouTube or the church of whatever it is they're engaging with via social media, be it Facebook, or some other apparatus on the internet. Eventually it does give, right? Because there's a lot more to life than engaging in a screen. I mean, the thing that always just stuns me is, and this might sound a little bit odd, but we have this enormously complex, and in many ways, delightful world all around us, constantly in flux and change. And instead of actually sitting with that, we try to capture what we want in a little tiny screen that in comparison to the rest of the world is so incredibly small
3: Mm
2: -hmm. right It's, it's like we try to control this little space and if we can stay in that little space i'll be fine and i'll be satisfied and i'll have some sort of meaning meanwhile you're shutting out the entirety of the rest of the world There's somebody that I'm acquainted with, and whenever I see this person, he's an older gentleman, even older than myself, and he is hes actually a therapist. He is constantly on his phone. He never looks around. I mean, it's stunning. Like, when I observe him, I'm like, how does this guy even live? He is, every time I see him, when he's not in session, he is on his phone. He's also part of that same church. So,
1: I happen to agree with you, and I, I'm always saddened when people spend more time turning away from their relationships in real life and more time online, ostensibly in relationships or playing games or whatever they're doing online. But I wanted to play Devil's Advocate for a minute and just sort of consider, you know, I oftentimes think about cases where there's an autistic kid who's living in some very small rural town who finds the internet and really finds support or you know, some sort of recognition of him or herself in descriptions of other autistic kids and finds the technology mediated environment somehow helps to buffer them against sensory overload or something are there instances you know or the cases of lgbt folks who find other communities you know initially where they don't find that support in real life in their hometown until they're older are there cases like that that you imagine might be really useful or really positive or really healthy
2: so at some level i really hate this analogy i'm about to
1: <laughs> about to make. Go right so ahead. Forgive me, Sometimes forgive that's what me. comes. Yes.
2: Again, it's hard to keep these sort of things accurate in my memory because there's so many of these. I'm talking about a shooting. Mm. So it was yesterday, or the day before. There was somebody else trying to shoot up a group of people, but he got shot by some guy who just happened to be armed, right? And so immediately, there's a whole group of pro-gun people who say, look, this is why we all need to carry guns, because there's going to be some nut job out there trying to shoot up something, shoot up a mall or whatever it might be, a supermarket. But if there's somebody there who's armed, they can put that guy down. And that's a classic argument for the pro-gun lobby. That, to me, is analogous to the argument right, that's made that like these kind of social media or the internet or smartphones really enable folks, particularly queer folks, autistic folks, to find community with others, particularly if they live in certain parts of the world. I'm not going to deny that that's the case, right? I mean, that is true, particularly if you're living in some horribly homophobic part of the country, and there's a lot of them. And if you're queer and you find that there's really nobody around you, you can turn to, but you're able to make connection with people online. Sure. I'm not against that. But for me, that's not enough of an argument to somehow support the rest of what we do with technology. Right?
1: Yeah. So it's useful in certain cases and maybe useful to facilitating something toward real relationships in the flesh eventually. So for that kid that's in rural wherever, ultimately, hopefully those relationships get built in real life when there's freedom and and capacity to travel and be with other people who are similar.
2: Right, and then hopefully the smartphone could be put down then. The problem is, let's say a queer person in some very rural part of Wisconsin who feels very isolated and alienated, when they get on a smartphone, to connect with others, they're not simply doing that. All the rest of what we spoke about, right, this foisting of fantasy that I was Mm -hmm. referring to earlier also occurs for them. So all of us, in our experience on social media or with smartphones, with this sort of technology, actually will have certain parts of ourselves come to the fore, certain parts of ourselves that, the discourse of capitalism has already privileged for decades and much to our collective detriment. Right. And so, okay, let me say something about the collective aspect of this.
1: Yeah. I was just going to ask you about that. What's the ultimate summation of all this? What happens to us all? Do you imagine?
2: Right. So I remember, man, this was even seven or eight years ago. It wasn't too, too long ago where when you took the BART and so the BART is the Bay Area rapid transit system here, right? So it's the Metro of the Bay Area. So you can go from San Francisco to the East Bay, that sort of thing. And it goes underneath the Bay at a certain point. So when it leaves the East Bay, like Oakland and Berkeley, it goes under the Bay before it surfaces again and arrives at the Embarcadero station in San Francisco. Now, I remember that it is for a long time, There was no cell phone reception in the the tunnel under the bay. And so there was this phenomenon, many of us saw it, where you'd be sitting there and most everybody's on their phone. But the moment it hits the tunnel, people were forced to put their phones on. They had no more reception. They couldn't connect. And so they would put it down. And it takes about like seven minutes to go through that tunnel. They would actually sometimes turn to each other and start having a conversation until they got to the other side and they got reception again. And then they stopped having those conversations with people around them and went back to having the conversations with the people they always have conversations with online. Now, the reason I bring that up is what keeps us going as a society are not the strong links like family and dear friends for as important as they are. It's what are referred to as the weak links, which is the kind of connection one makes with people on a train because they're reading a book or because they have the same pants as you do, or you notice that they keep on getting off at the same stop and you start having a conversation about something. That's what builds a certain kind of solidarity in the world socially. Mm -hmm. But if you never really have those kind of interactions because the moment that you're in transit or you have any downtime in your life, you're looking at your phone or the internet, you're not engaging then with the people that are actually around you physically. And that leads to a real reduction in solidarity, which is to say, we just don't really end up caring much for other people. Why? Because we don't connect with them. But I think we all have had the experience where you might not have cared too much about somebody or a group of people but then you have a direct experience with them and all of a sudden it really matters to you this happens all the time when we travel we travel and all of a sudden right there's a group of people that you'd heard about that might be oppressed and you're thinking well whatever you know there's plenty of people that are oppressed they's so got to deal with it then you go over there and you spend time with them you break bread with them you mingle with them and then all of a sudden they come alive as people and then your concern for them comes alive and if something happens whereby you could actually positively impact them in their lives, you go out of your way to actually help them out. That happens all the time. But the more we engage with social media with those strong links, the less we actually have the possibility of connecting with people right around us. And hence, it decreases the solidarity. That concerns me greatly, mm-hmm. is that a particular aspect of it.
1: I happen to agree with you, and I, you and I are similar. We're both Gen X, and I think there's this sense of really recognizing all the things. I have a book at, at my bedside that says you know a hundred things that the internet has made obsolete, and I oftentimes read about those things. Many of them are in this space of connecting to everyday people nearby because now there's a technological way to do that, and it just it's that way of connecting is gone. Younger people don't seem to share this concern as a group, not all of them, but in general, they seem to have quite a bit of hope for the future and for what technology will bring. I'm trying very hard to be, you know, a good representative of an older generation and to mentor the young people in my practice and in my life and to support their hope and their ideas, even when I disagree with them. At the same time, I'm very worried that they don't know what they're missing because they've never actually seen a life that is analog. What do you think about the hope for the future and the future generation? And are you seeing these same trends that are happening along generational lines?
2: I would give you a different answer depending on the day. (laughs) (laughs) Good. (laughs) The reason I say that is because of the experiences that I have on a day-to-day basis with folks, particularly with young folks. So youth, the youth, right, to put it in that way, they figure in a very crucial way in my life. I won't get into why, but what I'm saying is the actual experience of young people nowadays is something that is of central concern for me. And one of the things that I do notice is that we all have no idea what we're missing out on. And I think a couple of things. I do see a huge, wide swath of very confused, very lost, discombobulated, socially disconnected young people. That to me is a cause of major sorrow, to witness that on a regular basis. I see it all the time. Mm -hmm. And yet I see a whole nother swath of young people who are actually saying no to what's been handed to them and are asking for real meaning, real substance, real connection in their lives. Those are people we can more readily actually engage with because they're looking and they're hungry and with good reason. The other group is much more difficult to reach. And the reason I say that is precisely because they're so caught up in this whole fantasy realm of the image. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: What I'm saying with that is that's enormously powerful and corporations know it. But being that you're an analyst, I'm an analyst, and we live in the in that world of psychoanalysis, I think it also brings to the fore some serious concerns for the actual practice of psychoanalysis. I've noticed that I've had to also, because I supervise many other clinicians, I've noticed that they've also had to do this, which is cohere a different way of working with young folks as compared to, let's say, people our age. The, transference has changed. Now, I'm wary of saying this because there's always a singularity of whatever person is coming into our office. And so I'm keen not to give sociological explanations for a psychic phenomena,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? Like, let's say the transference. And so with that in mind, I do think that there are transformations in the social field that have direct bearing on the capacity for clinical work to be done in the way that we're trained to do it. The transference simply does not take place in the same way with young people as it does with people our age, period, full stop. And so I think one of the things we have to do is figure out actually how to allow for transference to happen so we can then do the kind of work we're trained to do. So what I'm saying here is we are unable usually nowadays to jump into analytic work in the same fashion that we might have 20 or 30 years ago with folks. There's anterior steps that have to sort of be enacted in order for us to do our work proper. And many, many authors, many analysts have now written about this. So certainly I'm not the first analyst to actually speak about this. But I insist on this because most of the time I'm in session with analysis and I notice this on a daily basis, which is there's certain things I have to do for the transference to actually take hold Mm -hmm. in a fuller way that allows for analytic work. Now, somebody could very easily say, well, the transference is there from the moment they walk in your office. In fact, it's there from before they walk into your office. Sure, absolutely. But I'm talking about there's a certain kind of plenitude of transference that can occur that allows for actual analytic work to occur. And unless you have that plenitude of transference, it's simply not going to happen in the way that we're used to. So one of the big complaints I hear from a lot of analysts is, I just can't work with these young people, right? They don't actually want to do analysis. They want to do something else. I don't know how to work with them. I think there has to be a transformation in the way we work with folks. So they can actually do analytic work.
1: Mm -hmm. So they're hungry, but they don't know what they're hungry for. And most of the young people or even people who come from tech will come into my office and say, what can you do in 10 sessions? Or why does it cost so much? Or what's the deal with the couch? Why can't I just sit upright or what have you? And they really want to balk at some of the, the major aspects of analytic treatment, which allow them to be in the unknown and allow them to be with their unconscious and allow us both to discover what's happening. There's like an impatience and a desire to have some sort of a, an algorithm, like, okay, tell me what the steps are and what you're going to do and I'll do them really well. And, you know, it's like an app you know, as if they want a psychoanalysis app. And it takes time, I find, to help them develop. Like, actually, what you're getting is something that's fully different than that. There is no app here. And that's what's beautiful about it is that we're going to discover together. And that's oftentimes a hard sell, actually. What you're talking about, letting the transference take hold, it takes a while for them to truly trust another human being, to not know and to not have an algorithm, and to to develop something together because they've actually never had that experience.
2: Right. Exactly. So I think very specific, concrete aspects of clinical practice get impacted by what we're talking about here. And one of them is somebody's capacity to have patience when they're confronting something they've been dealing with their whole life. Now, let me specify what I mean here. So young folks, let's say somebody who's 18 now, they've been promised from the moment they were born that they could have it all.
3: Mm hmm.
2: They could have the thing they really want. Now, of course, they don't end up getting what they want. Why? Because none of us do. Right?
1: Desire and lack and joy Exactly.
2: Yes. Exactly. We don't get what we want. Or better yet, I'll use a line from Apocalypse Now, the Coppola movie, where one of the characters says, everybody gets what they want. When everybody gets what they want, you get apocalypse is what it comes down to. I'll just leave it at that. None of us get what we want, but we do have the grand opportunity to actually work with what we end up getting, whatever it might be.
1: Sounds like the Rolling Stones song then at the end of the day.
2: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Nice. So they've been told that their entire lives. Now, what ends up happening, and certainly the discourse of capitalism supports this, is that... When people don't end up getting what they want, instead of engaging in system blame, which is, well, look, I was told I was going to get what I want, but I didn't get it. What's going on at the level of the system that this is occurring? Instead, there is oftentimes a turn towards individual blame, right? In other words, I did not get the thing that I wanted because I'm not good enough. So all of a sudden, it becomes a question of moral character. I could speak about that for days. I think that's a very important thing because that's what I consistently hear in the office. People saying, I'm no good because I didn't get what I wanted. I'm here so I can get better, so I can get what I want, right? And my response, which I don't say out loud, but in my head is, well, your work here is to articulate your desire, but it doesn't mean you're going to get it. So that's what they're dealing with in the analysis is this very basic question of am I going to get what I think I want, which then later becomes, well, what is it that I want? Why do I want it? Right. And do I want it because I've been lacking in certain ways? That set of conversations that occur in an analysis means that somebody has to sit with a lot of uncertainty and anguish. In terms of this question of whether they're going to get what they want or not. And that is in short supply, that kind of patience, because it's never really cultivated in the culture. But I think the other thing that really has struck me in the last few years, especially I would say in the last three, is that I've noticed that once the transference does take place with young folks, it's extremely intense. Uh Uh-huh. In a way that I had not experienced before. Now, I'm very used to, I've been practicing for many years as an analyst. And one of the things that I do notice a change is that before, yeah, there were intense transferences and I'm used to those. However, this is of a different order. It feels oftentimes like it's their first time. It's a kind of almost like puppy love. Like a first love, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's so intense with all kinds of concerns about my safety and my health. Am I going to be around for the course of the work? Did something happen to me while I was on vacation? Oh, we started session a couple of minutes late. Are you okay? This kind of thing is all over the place. Now, granted, there's obviously unconscious wishes there. They want me dead. They want me out of the way. They want me to stop asking these ridiculous questions so (laughs) forth. Yes, absolutely. That's part of it, but that's not all of it they're genuinely concerned about my safety because it's the first time they've had an experience of like, of that sort. Now, why? Because the other feature that operates in the social field now that combines with social media and with these kinds of technologies is the erasure of the big other. Yeah. There's very little nowadays in the way of some sort of voice. And I mean that on purpose voice. Somebody or something, an entity that speaks to them about them,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: right? That says something to them about themselves. You are this, you are not that. So much of that's been erased for a whole range of reasons that when they finally get into a room where finally there can be an instantiation of something like that, it comes and it comes really heavy. So I think as analysts, we have to be quite prepared for very dicey and intense transferential reactions, or better yet transferences, on the part of our patients and analysis because of these transformations in the social field.
1: So our work has both become more difficult in some ways, but also more important.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons I'm the editor-in-chief of EJP and I taught for years at the university and I write and you know, I give lectures and all that, Is precisely because of the transmission of psychoanalysis, which is an aspect of my own desire, which is a result of my own analysis. One of the reasons that the transmission of psychoanalysis is so vital in my life and why I dedicate so much time and energy to it is because in the end, I think it's the only thing we have left, Mm. which saddens me.
1: Yeah, it's also hopeful.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it is. At least we got something, right? Although we don't have it, we have. Something, not the thing, but it is something. And in my mind, it's the very little thing we have left. There's almost nothing else left, really, that actually can provide an opening, that can provide a moment outside of the discourse of capitalism. It's not lost on me what the time of a session is nowadays. In other words, it's not just how long it takes. What I mean is what actually occurs in the room. I do ask my patients to, to silence their phones. People don't answer their phones or text or anything like that in sessions. There's been maybe a couple of exceptions to that. Somebody was on a couch and their wife was about to give birth. Okay. That makes you sense. Can keep your, yeah. Okay. That's a little bit different. Okay. But other than that, no, because we're trying to carve out a space that is not operating in the same sort of time signature as the discourse of capitalism. And that's one of the great gifts that psychoanalysis can provide. The fact that somebody lays on a couch, that everything's quiet, that we're not interrupting all the time, that they can speak at length about whatever they choose to, whatever comes to mind, is one of the great gifts we can give each other as humans. I was at a wedding like 15 years ago, some dear friends of mine, She's a therapist and she said about her husband, I knew you loved me because of the way you listened to me. And that really struck me. Yeah. There's a real love in listening to somebody in that way. And we can provide that, which is a rare and wonderful gift in our times. So yeah, psychoanalysis is incredibly important for me, precisely because of that reason and precisely because of the times we're living in. Mm -hmm.
1: You also are doing some current work that have some real relevance for the times that we're living in, where you're writing a series of pieces about ecological and psychoanalytic discourse and weaving those two together. I'm wondering if you want to say a little bit about this project and its importance, or if there's anything you'd like to say about desire, lack, or jouissance before we end today.
2: Thank you. So something came through me when I wrote my most recent article the one uh, burning down the house, the wildfires psychoanalysis and tumult article. And it was a way of allowing the sensibilities that emerge from the theory and practice of psychoanalysis to be articulated via other pathways, let's say, via other avenues. So, you know, I'm steeped in analytic theory, and have been for many years. And the terms and concepts that we use are important and they're dear to me and they're lacking. Mm -hmm. And any discourse is going to be lacking. In fact, it's the lack that allows for the rest of the system to actually constitute itself. So at the heart of any symbolic network, and I'm talking about symbolic in Lacanian terms at the heart of it is the lack. In other words, it's the lack is constitutive of the symbolic so any discourse is going to be lacking. There is no totalizing discourse that actually works. And so what I'm saying is that this other discourse that I'm aiming to engage in also is lacking. So I'm not trying to do one of these things where it's like, look, everything else is lacking. Here's something that doesn't lack. No, I'm offering something in addition that is also lacking. But it just strikes me. When I'm out in the wilderness, and I spend a fair amount of time out in the wilderness, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I came back from the wilderness, I was up in what's referred to as the Klamath mountain zone, which is far, far northern California, northwest California, and southwest Oregon. And I was particularly I was in an area called the Siskiyou wilderness, which is an extremely remote and vast wilderness in that northwestern tip of the state it takes a very long time to get out there there's almost nobody out there and i didn't encounter a single soul when i was in the the Siskiyou wilderness and the Siskiyou wilderness is a federally designated wilderness and so it's like 16 miles from the nearest road just to get to the trailhead and then to get into the actual wilderness it takes another like eight miles and then Once you're inside, it's vast. And while I was in there, one of the things that struck me is that there's other ways of speaking about this thing that we do called psychoanalysis that can find its articulation using other discourses, particularly ecological discourses, a way of letting wilderness speak. Because the unconscious, this thing that we as analysts work with, comes out of wilderness. Now, any lacanian hearing this would be like, well, hold on. There's an intermediate factor here that really matters. And that's language. Absolutely. We have an unconscious because we are speaking beings. We're inhabited, we're haunted, really, by language. Of course. And that's actually what provides the ground for the formation of the unconscious, as it were. But language itself comes out of wilderness. And so what I'm now looking at is a way of speaking about the unconscious, or speaking the unconscious, I think would be a better way of putting it, speaking the unconscious via a wandering through the woods, a sauntering through the woods, through a landscape that has not fallen prey to the axe, or to the human arc of sensibility. In other words, something that exists in itself for itself. And we are just visitors there. When you engage with a landscape of that sort over an extended period of time, something happens. And I want to detail what that thing is. So it's a way of bringing two sets of discourses that are very important to me into conversation. Not that one should supplant the other, but that a conversation, right, an attempt at a rapport, and now all rapports fail, but an attempt at it does actually generate something important. And so that's where I'm putting my energies in is to having an attempt at a rapport between these two sets of discourses. I did it in many ways with that burning down the house. I just wanna take it several more steps forward and have something of the wilderness speak such that it informs us as analysts.
1: Sounds um, really timely and important and needed.
2: Okay, thank you.
1: So we have been speaking with Dr. Fernando Castrillon Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you all for listening to Technology in the Mind. Next month, we'll be speaking with Dr. Catherine Malou about the importance of negative capability or the capacity to wait in the unknown for something to arise. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And thank you, Dr. Zapien. This has been a real pleasure to be able to share these thoughts with you. It's been a wonderful experience. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.